we will go through Matthew probably 9, 10, maybe into 11. And then by that time, summer will be here officially. We'll go into Psalms for the summer. We'll finish that up maybe right after Labor Day. And then we will go into, come back to Matthew. So, we're in Matthew chapter 9. And by way of summary, you know, Matthew uh, chapters 1 through 4 tell us about Jesus' uh, birth. Uh, about his baptism, how he's tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and then he emerges victorious. Uh, starts the Sermon on the Mountain, chapters 5 through 7. Uh, it's a teaching of Jesus. And then verse chapters 8 and 9, uh, we have his healing ministry. So we have his teaching ministry in uh, 8, and we have his healing ministry in 9. And last time we finish up at chapter 9 and verse 35. And this is a summary statement. So look at chapter 9 and verse 35. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, meaning in, in the region of Galilee up north, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom. That's a gospel you don't hear preached very much now, is it? Gospel of the kingdom. That God reigns reigning through Christ. And healing every sickness, meaning every kind of sickness and every kind of disease among the people. And then from that summary, which so Matthew is basically saying, he did a lot more, but i just let you know that, that he did the same thing in every village wherever he went. He now tells us about a very disturbing observance that Jesus makes. And we see that in verse 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Now notice the word but starts verse 36. Why would there be a but after verse 35, which says he went into villages everywhere healing people and their sicknesses and their diseases, but why would there be a but there? But when he looked upon the masses, the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them. Well, he gives us the reason in verse 36. Because they were weary, they were beaten down, and they were scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Now, when he looks at these people, he sees their condition, and he's moved with compassion. And there's a difference between compassion and sorrow. Okay? Sorrow, you see a situation, you say, I'm sorry. That doesn't cost you anything. But when you're moved with compassion, you're moved to your emotional core and you're motivated to do something. So he sees these people are beaten down and they are like sheep. He uses a, a simile. He likens the people to sheep. And he says they are shepherdless. They have no leaders to keep them together and protect them from the enemies out there. <clears throat> sheep or when they wander off and they're scattered, they're very vulnerable. Now, the concept of sheep is an Old Testament concept. Many times in the Old Testament, the prophets speak of Israel as God's flock. They are sheep. And the prophets speak of their leaders, the kings and the priests, as their shepherds. And so, a shepherd is one who's under God, who's responsible for taking care of God's people. 
and evidently the shepherds have abandoned the people. In this case, in Jesus' day and age, do they have leaders? Yes, they have King Herod. He's the king of the Jews. What a shepherd that one is. They have Caiaphas, the high priest. Not a bad choice for a priest. But guess what? They're looking out for number one. So in in a sense, even though they have a king and they have a priest, it's like having nobody. And so Jesus is moved with compassion upon these people. And uh, I'll give you an example. I think Jesus has has a reference in mind when he says this. And I want you to keep your finger here, but I'd like you to turn back to Ezekiel, okay? So, you'll find the major prophets, Isaiah, and uh, Lamentations, and then Ezekiel. When you find Ezekiel, turn to chapter 34. Now, this is one of the key chapters in Ezekiel, and we've turned here, I think, maybe once or twice before, but it's always worth seeing again, because... What you have is Ezekiel is a prophet to Israel during the Old Testament. During the captivity, Israel has been scattered. They've been, the land's been defeated. They've, uh, the nation's been scattered. They're in captivity. And here's what Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 34, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to me. And he said, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Now there's the word shepherds we saw before. Prophesy against them. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds. Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Supposed to be feeding your sheep. Feed yourselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and you clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fatlings. If you don't feed the flock, the weak you have, the weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick. Haven't bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor have you sought the lost. But with force and cruelty, you have ruled them. So they are scattered because there was no shepherd. Now that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Look at verse 10. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against the shepherds. I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouths. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to deliver... The sheep from the mouths of the shepherd. Usually you would deliver sheep from the mouths of wolves, wouldn't you? Oh, maybe the shepherds are the wolves. My flock from their mouths that they may no longer be food for them. And then look down at verse 23. I will establish one shepherd over them. So I will establish one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them. My servant David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, spoke. There's only one problem with this. David's been dead for hundreds of years. How's he going to establish David as the prophet, as as the uh, king over the sheep? If David's been dead, I must be thinking of another David. 
How about Jesus, the son of David? See, and Jesus is the new David. He's going to be the new King David who establishes the kingdom in Israel. So, this is very familiar language. And so when you go back to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew's readers would immediately remember those passages and they would say, oh, Israel's in the same condition now as it was back in those days. Jesus says, speaking on behalf of God, they are like sheep without a shepherd. They are facing a crisis in the nation. Now Jesus analyzes the situation. Look what he says in verse 37. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now he switches metaphors. He goes from sheep to a different metaphor. He goes from the flock to the field. Did you notice that? He goes from sheep being the flock to a harvest being the field. He goes from animal husbandry to horticulture. <laughs> he he bar he borrows these metaphors from these different areas. And he says that in verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So now we see why the bud is there. In verse 35, he goes around and heals all these people in all the villages, all these diseases, all kinds of diseases, all kinds of illnesses. But guess what? When he looks out at the harvest, when he looks out at Israel as a flock of sheep scattered about, he realizes that things are so big that they're too much for one man to handle. One person can't do it all. One person can't feed all the sheep. One person can't heal all the sheep. One person can't bring in a harvest. When there's a harvest, what does it take? Laborers. One farmer doesn't bring in the harvest. And so, Jesus needs help. And that's why there's a but there. <laughs> he saw the situation, it was so big, <laughs> that he uh, moves with compassion on them, and he has to do something. He has to take action. He needs laborers. And so he calls Israel now a harvest. And that's another Old Testament concept. Bible talks about the harvest. The harvest is a crisis time because the crops are ripe. And you only have a small window to harvest those crops. If you miss the window, guess what? They die. The harvest is lost. Israel is in that point right now. They're ripe for harvest, but Jesus can't do it alone. He can't minister to all these people alone. He needs to bring in, in a sense, the migrant workers. He needs to bring in the farmhands. He needs to have many more laborers. And that's what he's talking about right here. Otherwise, Israel will be lost. There will be crops that could have, that could have been picked that will be lost. And so he talks about these laborers that are needed, and he makes a request in verse 38. Look what he says. Therefore, he says to his disciples, Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And so the first action Jesus calls for is prayer. Prayer purpose. Look to the farmer who owns the field that's ready to be harvested and say, Hey farmer, you better get some laborers in here, you're going to lose that crop. So 
The Lord of the harvest is God. He says, we need to pray, and you need to pray that God will send out laborers into his harvest. Now, when we look out across the world, what do we see? Do we see a lot of needs out there? Can you do it yourself? <laughs> Can I do it? Can the pastor do it himself? We need laborers. So what's the first step we're to take when we realize that there are many people that are lost out there that could be brought in to the kingdom? Pray. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. And he will respond and send out the laborers. So that's where we are. So look, Jesus now takes action. Look at verse 1 of chapter 10. And when he called his 12 disciples, notice he gets these, this inner group. He has a multitude of people that are following him called disciples. He picks out these special 12. And look down at verse 5. It says, these 12 Jesus out. He says, pray that the Lord will send out harvesters. And guess what Jesus does in verse 1? He chooses 12 and he sends them out. Somehow he discerns whom God wants to go out there and minister to Israel. And he chooses in verse 1 12 disciples. So that word 12 is pretty important, isn't it? We know that 12 is rep represents Israel. 12 tribes, 12 apostles, each one representing a tribe, and their mission, listen, he chooses 12 representing the 12 tribes. Their mission is to go to Israel, God's harvest, God's flock, and reach them for the kingdom of God. Okay? And then look what Jesus does. He called them, beginning in verse 1. And then next, look what he does. Look at the next verse. And he gave them something. He gave them power, or better, authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now, if you just read that verse on its own, it might not mean as much. But when you read it in conjunction with verse 35 up there, it means a lot because it's the same language. Jesus was healing all kinds of sicknesses and all kinds of diseases. He looks out there, it's overwhelming. He says, we need more workers. He chooses 12 and he gives them authority to do what? <clears throat> exactly the same thing. They are going to be Jesus' agents. He gives them authority. He gives them the power of attorney. Power of attorney means that person speaks on your behalf, and acts on your behalf. Everything that Jesus said, they're going to say on his behalf. Everything that Jesus did, they're going to do on his behalf. They're his ambassadors, and they're his agents. He gives them authority to cast out demons, heal the sick, and heal those who are <coughs> diseased. Now, there's a caveat here. They have the authority to do this. The authority is delegated authority. They don't have it in and of themselves. It's something that Jesus gives them. But, and it's limited, they have the authority, but it doesn't do, doesn't do them any good unless they take action. How about if you hire a lawyer and you give him power of attorney and doesn't do anything? What good is it? So they have to do something with the authority that's been delegated to them. And now what we have is the list of those 12 people that he chose. And this is a... You think it's a familiar list, but it's not so familiar. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on the list because we know the names. 
some of the names. And, but it's important that you see just a couple things. So let's read the list in verses 2 through 4. First, names of the 12 apostles. Only time the word apostle is used in Matthew's gospel is this. First, Simon. He's always first in every list found in the four gospels. Simon is always listed. And that's his real name. That's his Hebrew name. Simon Bar-Jonah. His father's name was Jonah. And he's the son of Jonah. Simon. Nickname is Peter. Rocky. Right? Jesus said, you're a rock. That's his nickname. Simon's his real name. Okay? Now look what else. He's the chief of all. Second, Andrew, his brother. Andrew is always bringing people to Jesus. Okay? His name means manly. And... Uh, he was originally, we know from another gospel, that Andrew was originally a disciple of John the Baptist. And when Jesus is baptized and John points to Jesus, Andrew starts following Jesus. You know that from the gospel of John. Look at the third name there. James, the son of Zebedee. We know he's a fisherman. And he is one of the business partners with uh, Peter and Andrew. They're in business together. James, the son of Zebedee. He was the first martyr. He's the one who dies in Acts chapter 12. Remember Peter and James end up in prison and uh, James ends up being put to death and uh, Peter escapes. And now we have the fourth apostle. John, his brother. That's the beloved apostle. Brother of James, son of Zebedee. Also a Fisherman. Okay. Then fifth, verse three, Philip, who comes from Bethsaida. We know that from another uh, passage, and that is the town. Listen, that is the town of Peter and Andrew. So this is Philip. And they come from the same. He comes from the same town as Peter and Andrew. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel came to Christ by way of Philip. Remember, this is the one that said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? That's the guy that said that. We know from another passage, he comes from Cana of Galilee. These are all Galileans. They're all from the north. Jesus only chooses one apostle who's from the south in Judah. That's Judas Iscariot. Everybody else are hillbillies. They're up there in the north with the uh, Gentile areas. Okay, so that is Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel. Okay, well, look what else we have here in verse 3. Thomas, we all know about Thomas the Doubter. Uh, another passage calls him the twin. Now, I know something about twins. I've got a son who's married to a twin. You know what it's like for your twin to absolutely leave you? Michelle has a twin. What's it like when your sister, your twin sister leaves you? You're real happy with that? I've got... Uh, on my Facebook the other day and I looked at this and you know, Daniel's wife uh, Renee is a twin and they went on a trip and here's what it says and this is from her sister, Nicole, her twin sister marriage does crazy things to people <laughs> who would leave their twin sister all alone in America to fly off to London with her husband for vacation <laughs> Well, that's how twins are. I never knew that. The twins are so close. 
I used to know a couple guys who were baseball players and were twins, and they were just they were they were so close. And so here's one of the disciples who goes off. What do you think his twin brothers think? This is craziness. <laughs> well, that's who, who this guy is. Tom. Now look at the next name on that list. You have Thomas there in verse three, and then Matthew the tax collector, also known as Levi, who writes this book. And then James, the son of Alphaeus, and uh, also known as James the Less. Familiar with that name? James the Less? He's a different James than the James you have up in verse 2. You have James up in verse 2, who's John's brother, and in verse 3 you have James the Less, which in Greek is mikros, from which we get our word micro, which means little James. <laughs> he's, he's the little James. So you've made the distinction between little, Jim, little Jimmy and the other James. One's probably called James, and they'll call this guy Little Jimmy or something. So uh, that's uh, this James. Notice he's called son of Alphaeus. Okay? It's very important that you get that. Because we know from Mark chapter 2 that Matthew is also called the son of Alphaeus. So they're brothers. We have three sets of brothers among the twelve apostles. Peter and Andrew, James and John, and little Jimmy and his brother, whoever it was, Matthew. So among the apostles, you have three sets of brothers. Among the major figures in Matthew, John the Baptist and Jesus, you have cousins. This is a family affair. We never think of it that way. Who knows where Thomas's twin brother is? He's probably hanging around. He's probably a 13th guy that we never hear about. Always lurking in the shadows to be next to his brother. So there are brothers here. And then maybe one of these other guys is Thomas's twin brother. Just not mentioned. We don't know. It could be actually four sets of brothers. Now look at this next one. New King James says Lebaeus. Some translations don't have that. Uh, but New King James says Lebaeus, whose surname is Thaddeus. So here's the tenth apostle, Thaddeus. Other gospels say, also known as Judas, not Iscariot. So there were two Judases, one Judas Iscariot, one Judas not Iscariot. So this is Thaddeus, and he's an apostle. And then finally you come down to verse 4, Simon the Canaanite, some old other books call him Simon, Simon Zelotus, Simon the Zealot, who uh, we don't know what he was zealous for. He could have been zealous for God or zealous against Rome, but he could have been one of the troublemakers that was trying to overthrow Rome through violence. And then finally, Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. So these are 12 ordinary men, all peasants, in the sense that there's none of them that have money and three sets of brothers, and they have a group of fishermen, you have a tax collector who's for Rome, you have Simon the Zealot who's probably against Rome, you've got a conglomeration of people, and this is who Jesus chooses to reach Israel. And this is who Jesus uses today to reach our world. He uses people from all backgrounds, he uses families, he uses you know rebels, and somehow he can just reel them in and then send them out. So this is what we have here. We have the 12 people that Jesus chooses. Now, 
What we have in verses 5 and 6, he now commissions them and he instructs them. So look at verses 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out, and he commanded them, do not go to the way of the Gentiles. So now we're going to find out to whom he goes and to where he goes. These are, send them out. Well, where do you want us to go? Who do you want us to reach? And here he tells them, number one, in negative terms, don't go into the way of the Gentiles. Don't go into the Gentile section of Galilee. And do not enter a city of the Samaritans. And so we see that their mission is limited at this point. Limited in scope, limited in design, and Jesus therefore wants them to reach Israelites. He wants them to reach Jews, to the Jew first, and then the Gentile. This is the Jewish first part of the ministry. They have priority. These are God's flock. No cross-cultural evangelism at this point. Not reaching people from another background. Now, will he reach the Gentiles? Will he reach the Samaritans? Yes, in the book of Acts, we know that Philip goes to Samaria and he reaches the whole city. And we know that in chapter 10 of Acts, Peter goes and he reaches the household of Cornelius. Samaritans and Gentiles will be reached in due course. First, the priority goes to reaching the Jewish people. What is the mission that they are to have? Look what he says in verse 6. But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The long-awaited reign of God, the establishment of God's kingdom over the nation of Israel, giving them a new king, one who rules under the authority of God, that time has now arrived. We know in hindsight that Jesus is that king. The implication is you need to repent. You need to be ready for the kingdom as it comes in. And then, verse 8, not only are they to proclaim the kingdom, they're to demonstrate the kingdom. Proclamation and demonstration. Look at verse 8. Heal the sick. Cleanse the lepers. Raise the dead. Cast out demons. All the things that Jesus has just done in the previous chapter. Remember, he healed to raise the girl from death. He heals the lepers. He does all these things. They do the exact same thing. Freely you have received and freely give. In other words, you've been recipients of God's grace. Now you extend grace and mercy to other people. And the early church does the same thing. Once you get in the book of Acts, guess what? They're doing the same thing. They're raising people from the dead. They're healing the sick. They're the leper. They're casting out demons. They're doing all the same thing. Just goes on. We ask ourselves, why aren't we doing things like this? I haven't heard the answer. I'm just asking you a question. Now, look at regarding provisions. Regarding provisions. Look at verse nine. First, regarding money. Verse nine, regarding money. Okay. Here's his instructions. He says, "Provide neither gold nor silver nor copper in your money belts." These are all coins. People in those days carried coinage. These coins are listed in descending order. Gold, silver, copper. And that's how we used to have coins in America, didn't we? Gold coins, silver coins, and copper coins. Today we would say, hey, don't take hundreds with you, don't take tens with you, don't take ones with you. So, 
I imagine when he says that, they'd have to ask a question. Well, how in the world are we going to survive? And so now he says, well, let me tell you about some supplies. I know that's what they're thinking. That's what I would think. And so he now talks about provisions regarding supplies. Money and now supplies. Verse 10. Nor a bag for your journey. Don't take a knapsack. And that's where they kept food. Don't take you know, any extra food with you. Okay. Nor two tunics. Don't even take a change of clothes. In this case it would be underwear. Don't even take a second set of underwear. Underwear. Uh, now, when he starts saying these things, they have to think about, there was a group of philosophers who traveled. They were itinerant philosophers called Seneca, uh, Seneca philosophers. And uh, they traveled this way. Very frugal, uh, austere, and uh, Jesus is describing that kind of a situation. I mean, you are to absolutely walk by faith and not know where your next dime is coming from or what you're going to eat. Look at this. Nor sandals. Now, we know from another... From Mark's Gospel, it says a second set of sandals. And so that's probably what he means here. Because uh, two tunics, and he doesn't have to go over and say two and two and two and two. But nor sandals. Don't take any you know, extra shoes. And shoes were very important. Usually you keep an extra pair of shoes in there when you're traveling. It'd be like having a spare tire in your car to do that. Okay? But, nor staffs, plural. Don't take an extra staff for, uh, you know, carry the gun with you and all that kind of stuff to, for protection. Now, here he provides the reason why they're not to do any of that. Take any of these things, money or provisions. Because a worker is worthy of his food. Uh, he's worthy of... Uh, the person who works should get something for working. In this case, what he's saying is his needs should be met. How are their needs going to be met? Jesus said, you just go. Don't take any provisions or money with you. Your needs will be met. That means you have to go by faith. We discover their needs are going to be met through hospitality. And that's how people uh, had their needs met many times in the Bible uh, days. So you're going to have to depend upon people's hospitality. And it says you're worthy of this. Now you're worthy of this. Now we would think, hey, I'm worthy of a salary. That's what I'm worthy of. I'm an evangelist. I travel, leave my family behind. I'm worthy of a salary. In this case, you said, well, you're worthy, but you're not worthy of a salary in this case. On this mission, people will see, hey, we should take care of them. This, is, this guy's worth something. We need to take care of this individual. So they're going to have to depend upon hospitality. Now how are you going to go about doing this thing? Well Jesus is going to give them the plan. Look at verse 11. Now, whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy and stay there till you get out, till you leave the city. Now, what strikes you when you see that verse, verse 11? What's the thing that jumps off the page for verse 11 for you? The word worthy is the recipient's worthy, and the person who supplies the goods, the provider of hospitality, is worthy. So there are two people that are worthy. You know something? You're worthy of receiving something for this. And guess what? You're worthy of providing it. That's how Jesus deems our worth. We're always hunting for worth in our lives. Sometimes you 
demonstrate your worth by giving and meeting people's needs. That's worth in God's eyes. Jesus talks about those who are not worthy to enter the kingdom of God. They say Jesus, they say Lord, 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 because of that worthiness. Who's worthy to enter the kingdom of God? People who have these kinds of characteristics. Uh, who's worthy to receive help when they're preaching? Uh, people that are sent out by Jesus are worthy. Not people who are self-ordained, self-proclaimed evangelists, self-this and self-that. These are the people that God deems worthy. Now, I know about this because back when I was in seminary, in a very liberal seminary, I might add, one that you would not even recognize as being, quote, Christian, but they used the name Jesus, but there was not much Christian about that seminary. There was a big demonstration in Washington, D.C. Now, this will tell you how old you are. There was a massive demonstration called the Moratorium, where hundreds of thousands of kids came to Washington, D.C., and hippies came to Washington, D.C. to protest the Vietnam War. Well, they didn't have any place to stay, so they came to the seminary. And we had a big hall there, and you know they were all just camped out. And uh, there were only about 12 of us on campus who were conservative. I wanted to see what's going on down there. So went down there and started talking to this guy. This one guy was very fascinating. It was obvious that this guy was a real Christian. We started talking about theology and everything. And I said, I had a roommate too. And we got in with this guy. I said, this guy is very fascinating. We're going to invite him to stay in our dorm room tonight so he doesn't have to sleep on that floor, that hard marble floor. Now, why did we do it? Because we deemed him worthy. And in doing that, we had worth by providing him his needs. And so Jesus uses this word worthy here. And here's what he says. Find those who are worthy. Inquire. Look around. Who's worthy? This is something you have to seek out. You see that? Seek it out. Find out who's worthy. And stay there until you go out. Make this your base of operation. If you're going to be there two days, stay at this person's house interesting. Look at verse 12. And when you go into a household, now this is not the one where you're staying. Now you're in the city and you're preaching the gospel, praying for people to be healed. You're going to go door to door in the household. And when you go into a household, greet it. Say, we're here in the name of Jesus. And we believe it to be the Messiah. If the household is worthy, oh, watch this. If that household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. If they say, well, come in, tell us about this guy, Jesus, that he might be the Messiah. The kingdom of God's at hand? Yeah, we want to hear about it. That's the one that's worthy of hearing. If you find out that they're worthy, let your peace come upon it, verse 13. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. Now that concept of peace is like blessing. If these people accept you and listen to you, say, God bless you. May God's blessings flow down upon you. May His peace, may wholeness come to your household. But if you go in and they go in and they say, we're not interested in this, then guess what you're to do? Don't cast your pearls before the swine. Don't bless them. They're not blessed. Guess what they are? They're cursed. They're going to be outside the kingdom. That's not a blessing. That's a cursing. So He's giving them instructions how they're to do all this. And so they're representing Jesus, 
And if they're accepted, that household is worthy. If they're not, that household is not worthy for your peace or blessings to come upon them. Now look at verse 14. Verse 14. By the way, which means that you could expect to be rejected, couldn't you, when you go out and preach the gospel and do these things. It's not all going to be, you know, a happy time. Verse 14 says, And whoever will not receive you, nor hear your words, that would be the non-worthy people, when you depart from that house or that city, and there might not even be a door that opens to you. The leaders may come, the mayor may come and throw you out of the city and say, what are you doing? We're, we stand with Herod, you know, or something like that. Here's what you do. If the house does not open up to you, nor the city, they do not receive your words. When you depart from that house or that city, shake off the dust from your feet. Just say, well, we are finished with you then. And then move on to the next house. That is a ritual of renunciation. You renounce that city. It comes under condemnation because it doesn't accept the message that the kingdom of God is in. They said, we want to think the way with the way they are. <clears throat> we, you know, we, we, it's not great here, you know, but Rome's in charge. We're not going to do... We don't... I don't... Come on now. And they reject it. He said, then you should perform a ritual. When you get outside the city, you cross that city line, just shake that dust right off your feet. Do we ever see that happening in the Bible? We do. Let me show you one example. And then we'll uh, try to finish this thing up. Look over at Acts 13. Acts 13. You actually see it happening. This is not just a, a figure of speech. Okay? This is an act or a ritual of renunciation. Acts 13. And look down at verse 48, for example. 13, Acts 13 and verse 48. Paul is... Uh, in Antioch, he's preaching, and then you have in verse 48, it says this. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. And many, uh, as had been appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of that city raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, Barnabas and expelled them from the region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them, and they came to Iconium. So here's an example of just what you do. Now, I know what that's like. I've actually gone to churches where I've preached, and there's been hostility. And uh, Link, you remember a couple of these places where I go, and we get in our cars, and good riddance. I say that just when I cross into the Texas state line when I've been out of town. And I, I'm in another state and I cross into Texas and I say, good, rich. I'm back in, you know, God's land. So we've all done this, haven't we? And uh, only this is for a different reason. That's, this is entering the promised land when you do that. You know, you know. But anyway. So what we're saying is that when you go in, if they accept your message, you say, well, God's blessing be upon this house. If they reject your message, and even the town, like here, the chief people threw them out of the town, you put God's cursing upon them because they will not be in the kingdom. They're not worthy of the kingdom. So the concept of harvest speaks of salvation. Those that are ripe and are picked are saved. Judgment. Those that are not picked are 
uh, end up lost. And so this is what we're supposed to be doing. Now just think what this means for Matthew's audience, by the way, who's reading this 50 years later, after the fact. They're in the same boat. They look out and say, oh, this is such a big, this is too big. How can we, how can we reach the city for Christ? Jesus is giving you the formula. First of all, you should pray. You said, God, send out some harvesters. We need some more laborers. And you know what? You might discern that you're one of them that's supposed to be out there. God might be calling you to be out there. You know, some of you are in retirement years. You have time now where you actually could be doing something great for the kingdom of God. You do more in these next 10 years for the kingdom of God than you did in the past 75 years for the kingdom of God. And so maybe God's calling you to do this. He's calling somebody to do it. And these are just ordinary people. Now look at verse 15. Jesus tells what happens to those cities that reject the gospel. Assuredly, I say unto you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Why will it be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than those cities that reject Christ then and now? Because we have more revelation. Sodom and Gomorrah had no Bible. We got a Bible that's available for everybody. They can read it and they say, I don't believe that stuff. Well, guess what? It'll be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than it'll be for you or the city that rejects Christ. Shows you, by the way, there is there are degrees of judgment, doesn't it? More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than you. There's degrees of judgment. The more revelation you have, the worse the judgment. Israel as a nation, through its leaders, through its king. King Herod, through its priest, Caiaphas the priest, will reject the offer of the kingdom of God. And God sets Israel aside, he will destroy that city. He'll destroy that city, he'll destroy, he'll destroy the temple. But within Israel, there will be people who are worthy, who will accept the gospel, and for them they receive the kingdom of God. Very interesting. Jesus comes to Israel, proclaims to be the king of the Jews. They reject it as a nation. King of Jews, they reject him as a nation. They put him on the cross. God raises him from the dead. And at that point in his resurrection, he's now claimed king of the universe. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. I'm no longer just king of the Jews. I'm king of what? Everybody. Therefore, you go into all the nations, including Gentile nations, to the Centurion, to Samaria, and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. Therefore, you go. He delegates the authority to us replicate his ministry. And that's what that chapter is about. That's how Matthew's audience would understand it. And that's how we should understand it and apply it as well. Pick up the next verse. Next verse. Lord, we thank you for <clears throat> the scriptures where we have a, a testimony, a witness to the facts. Uh, we can see what happened. We can get a feel. If we think and we're creative. We can get a feel for what's happened. 
Help us to realize, Lord, that you are calling many people into the harvest, and it may even be us. Thank you, Lord. We can go down verse by verse. We can look at these passages in context, the verses that surround them, and we can literally understand what this gospel is all about and how it was carried out. Oh, Lord, help us now to do our part. Help us to apply it to our lives and our situation. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.